Hi, I'm Louis Friedberg. We at EdSource hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and some welcome time off from school and work. This week, we thought we'd bring to you again an episode from earlier this year about the challenges faced by foster children. During this holiday season, it's important to remember that children are in families that come in many different forms and that foster families play an especially important role in welcoming children who have often gone through hard times. This program was recorded in April, and we're happy to bring it to you again. Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm Zadie Stavely. This week, we'll be taking a closer look at a too often neglected part of the education system, foster children. Six years ago, California became the first state to require school districts to focus on foster children specifically. They were named as one of the high-needs groups of students targeted by the local control funding formula. The others, as many of you know, being low-income students, English learners, and homeless children. The state even had an impact on federal law. The Every Student Succeeds Act also includes new language requiring states to track achievement and graduation rates of foster children. Zadia, I wasn't aware of that rippling effect of California's law. I just found it out myself. But the law in California has had a mixed impact. It's forced districts to focus on the needs of foster children more than in the past. Some districts have done so, but others are doing little to set up services specifically for foster children. And Lewis foster youth still lag far behind state averages, and most other student subgroups on key indicators like test scores, graduation rates, high suspension, and chronic absenteeism rates. We won't go through all the statistics, Aidy, but the gaps are pretty shocking. For example, 18% of foster children are chronically absent. That means they're absent for 10% or more of the school year, compared to 9% of students statewide. About 5% of students statewide are suspended, and that's compared to 15% of foster kids. And then on the Smarter Balanced Test Scores, just huge gaps between foster students and others. Now, they're not the only student subgroup that's lagging, but some discussion whether they're at the bottom or near the bottom. One reason that foster children get overlooked, Lewis, is that in a state the size of California, there are so few of them. There are about 50,000 at the most recent count. And of course, 50,000 in California with 6 million students in the public school system, easy to get lost. Right. And to talk about foster students and the larger landscape, we're pleased to have on the line Rob Waters, who is our reporter who has been digging into the foster care issue for the last couple of months, actually. Rob, uh, good to have you with us. Good to be with you, Lewis. So tell me, what were some of the things that surprised you that you weren't really expecting when you started looking into the foster care landscape? Well, I think the first thing that really surprised me was to find out that as of just a few years ago, no one really knew, the schools didn't know when they had foster youth, Uh, a teacher wouldn't know when they had foster youth in their classroom, an administrator wouldn't know how many foster youth were in their schools. They were sort of this invisible group. I think the other thing that surprised me is the degree to which they continue to really struggle academically in the schools and the relative lack of support that's provided to them as a group, considering the history of trauma that these kids have almost by definition. Rob, can you share with us some of the stories that you heard directly from foster youth? The most common story that I heard from foster youth was 
the incredible mobility, you know, talking to kids who had been in literally dozens of schools throughout their academic careers because of the instability of the foster care system, the child welfare system, they would be placed for short-term stays, get placed in a different foster home, and yet again in another foster home, and each time they would switch schools. So if you think about a, a kid who has already had major upheaval in their lives and had to sever or at least suspend their primary relationships with their parents and with other you know, key people in their lives, and then they're getting moved from one school to another, cutting off friendships, cutting off relationships with teachers, cutting off relationships with peers, that was one of the things the kids that I spoke with talked about a lot. You also did visit a district, Benita Unified, in Southern California that seems to be doing quite a lot for foster kids. Yes, and this is in Laverne, California, which is in the San Gabriel foothills in Los Angeles County. They have really been pretty exemplary, as far as I can tell, in terms of looking at the needs of these kids and trying to figure out how to help them and support them. What are they doing specifically then? Well, for instance, I visited one school, Roynan Elementary School, and one of the things that they they've done is they've got a, a special education teacher there whose primary role is to work with foster youth. They also have two foster liaison positions, two case managers with counseling backgrounds who are, you know, working directly with every foster youth that comes into the, into the district. And in the case of the special education teacher, whose name is Tim Marshall, his classroom is sort of an open space where kids can come out of another classroom if they're feeling, you know, stressed or tense. Uh, they can come in. He has some space for them that's very open and comfortable, and they can come in and just chill out, calm down. He also works with kids one-on-one. -on -one. He and his colleagues greet the kids when they first get to the district and, and the school and try to really shepherd them along. It's still very difficult because the way that they find out that a kid is about to show up at the school is they get an email that, you know, so-and-so is going to be coming to school tomorrow. And then they get another email at some point in the future that said so-and-so is done you know, today will be his last day, or maybe yesterday was his last day. So in a lot of cases, there's no opportunity for any kind of closure with these kids or to even say goodbye, which is really hard on, on the school community, they say, but it must be especially hard on the kids themselves. Rob, what solutions did people pose to you about how to fix that problem in particular and others? Well, there's a lot of discussion about how to deal with the, the question of, of school mobility, uh, and I don't think anybody's got an answer. There is a law in the books that requires that foster youth have the opportunity to go to their school of origin, which could be the school that they previously went to or a school that they'd been to in the past that they felt particularly connected to. When a kid gets placed in a new foster home, that new foster home could be in a place like L.A. County, could be as much as an hour and a half away from the school that they previously attended. So even though there's this law in the books, the practicality is that it's very hard to arrange for that kid to get back and forth to school. And if they could, they would spend, you know, three hours a day commuting back and forth. So there are some real logistical problems, especially in a county like Los Angeles, 
which has a very large number of foster youth. That was Rob Waters, a reporter for EdSource, whose story on the foster care challenge was published in EdSource this week. Coming up, we talk with a longtime foster youth advocate about what she thinks needs to be done to improve outcomes for foster kids in California. We have with us in the studio Michelle Francois, who has been a leader in the foster youth advocacy movement for quite a while. She is Senior Director of Compassionate Systems for the National Center for Youth Law, which is actually just across the street from us here in Oakland. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. So what do you think has worked? I mean, let's start with that. One of the bright spots is the awareness of youth in foster care has risen throughout the state. Most people now understand that young people in foster care are a group of young people that have different and significant educational needs. I think most people in the state understand that mobility is an enormous issue for young people in foster care. Um, I think a lot of folks are beginning to understand and become aware of the biases that have been held for so long about the capacity of this group of young people to succeed. And so I think the visibility has risen quite significantly. The fact that we even know today and are able to track things like attendance, grades, proficiency, and graduation is quite significant. And so I am hopeful that the capacity to be able to have our eyes on the situation is going to lend itself to better effort on the part of serving this group of young people. So can you tell us why you think that better understanding of foster needs and and issues hasn't translated into higher graduation rates? There's a number of reasons. The first is that the vast majority of local control accountability plans do not specifically reference this population. It references a lot of general work, but it does not specifically call out the needs for this group of young people. So they're putting all of English language learners, foster youth, low-income students all together in one lump? Yes. And the circumstances for youth in foster care are significantly different. Let me ask you about that. Should the law be amended to call out foster kids? I do not think we're going to comply or policy our way out of this situation. When you look at the systems thinking iceberg, where the event, the event in this case being a group of young people that are tragically not realizing the potential we know they have, um, and then looking at the patterns and structures that are supporting that, but then even under that, the mental models, beliefs, and values and the culture and climate within the school community that is essentially sending the message to young people that they are not welcome, that they're not connecting with the school community, where they are feeling not supported. That condition, that deeper level of the iceberg is where we need to be focusing much more so that we can begin to see those outcomes begin to change. Have you seen districts that are doing something right? Yes. So there are several districts across the state that are specifically looking at the unique and specialized needs of youth in foster care. So um, Lancaster Unified School District, Monterey Peninsula School District, and others are kind of leading this movement. And we don't yet see the kind of outcome shift that we know is possible and should be the case. But these uh, kinds of efforts that are kind of tackling it at a deeper level are newly emergent. 
Can you walk us through what it feels like for a foster youth who comes to the school if they have a good climate? How does it feel different for that person and how does that translate into a better outcome? So we hear a number of stories from the young people that we're working with that are so tragic. The first is, is that often young people in care come in the middle of the year. There's no kind of intentional welcoming them into the school. Uh, there's, they're often arriving in a place where they're not going to get credit for any of the past work that they've done because they haven't fully completed that class. It's quite dismaying to our young people that they might have taken algebra one, three, four, five times, but never completed it and have to start every time they enter a new school. Our assessment systems are inherently problem-oriented. So they experience a universe where people kind of diagnose their situation and present to them what their deficits are. No young person is going to thrive if they're focusing on what their deficits are. Finally, I think one of the biggest things that our young people experience is that they are largely silent in every single decision that's made on their behalf. They're not asked, do you want to change a school? They're not asked, what courses do you want to take? They're not asked to uh, voice, if they get into trouble into school, what's actually going on and what's informing that behavior. So I believe that to change the situation, one of the biggest things that we need to see is young people's voice directly informing all of the decisions that impact their education. They should be at the center of that. And I think that's the case for every age of young person. I think that that's quite important to any change happening is that young people know that someone's listening to them. Michelle, isn't one of the problems that there's not that many foster kids? I'm so glad you asked that. When you look at the California dashboard, uh, you immediately see that we've got 6.2 million students. 61% of those are living in poverty. 20% of them are English language learners. And then you see this number, 0.8% of youth in foster care. So you ask the question, why? Why? Why do we care about looking at the needs of this specific tiny population? And I think there are three really, really important reasons. The first is that for youth in foster care, the state has a responsibility to ensure the safety, health, and well-being of those young people. It is our responsibility. We have removed them from their homes, and it is not just the responsibility of an agency, the Child Welfare Agency, it's the responsibility of all of us collectively. The second is, this is a group of young people that are faring absolutely among the worst of any other subgroup. And I think that it is a call to action that if we're going to get this right for kids, we absolutely needed to be looking at those student groups for whom we are failing. And in this way, the third reason is that I think that this 0.8% is a barometer for equity in our state. It is a barometer for whether or not all is actually meaning all. And I think until we start seeing the outcomes of the young people that have really not been thriving in our system and have really been left behind, we're not going to live in the reality that we all hope to see that all young people are thriving in their education. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Michelle Francois, Senior Director of Compassionate Systems for the National Center for Youth Law. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You know, Zadie, all this reminds me that in a state the size of California, it's easy to lose sight of smaller groups of students who have special needs and challenges like foster children. But what's sobering in this case is that school districts are required to focus on ensuring that foster students succeed through the local control funding formula. And despite that, they still have a long way to go. 
that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Thanks also to the Walter S. Johnson Foundation for its support for our coverage of Foster Youth. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm Zadie Stavely. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.